Well, good morning, friends. I'm Dave Hyatt. I'm on the pastoral staff here in the area of missions and local outreach, and I'm glad to be with you guys today. Um, welcome to Hershey Free Church online here. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone complaining loudly? I'm sure you have. So maybe it's a dumb question, but just think about the last time you were standing in a checkout line and someone in front of you was just complaining about something that they, a service they didn't get or um, a price that they wanted or you're at a hotel and you're checking in and someone checking out, which always seems to be the case. People pick right then to complain. Um, we have whole departments that, that take complaints, right? Because complaining is so common in, in our world and in our atmosphere. And, uh, but the Apostle Paul, he, um, he addresses complaining, which he calls grumbling here, which is a great word, isn't it? Complaining and grumbling and says it's, it's a lot more serious than just something to be written off as someone who is just... Uh, just discontent or malcontent, that the Apostle Paul actually, as we get into the book of Philippians, which we've been looking at over the last several weeks, he talks about grumbling as something that can can really inhibit our growth spiritually, our own personal development and, and grace and growing towards God. It can just disrupt and almost destroy, even destroy, I've seen it, destroy community, communities of churches, of followers of Christ. And it can be a blemish on our witness for Jesus Christ, who we are, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, it can say to the world um, some things that we really don't want it to say. So grumbling, complaining, um, these things can, can have a negative impact in three areas of life that are very, very important. First, as we get into this, I want to give you a little bit of a background. As you know, we've been in the book of Philippians, if you've been with us. And that's a, a letter from the Apostle Paul, who uh, was a leader in the early Christian movement. And he's in prison, and he writes a letter to this the small church in a, in a relatively large city of Philippi in Greece and um, writes a letter to this church that he loves. He loves the church of Philippi because he founded that church literally on his own blood, sweat, and tears. He was beaten and imprisoned in this, in this place, and he's gotten to know the people, and he loves them, and he's got some deep, deep concerns about the church that, that come out. He doesn't uh, necessarily address them all head on, but if you listen, it's like listening to half of a phone conversation. You can, you can tell what's going on on the other half, right? Paul's saying, I want you to be uh, unified. I want you to stand together as one for the gospel. I want you to, to get along with each other. I want you to bear with each other. So he gives this over and over. He gives advice about unity, which makes you think, huh, there must be some disunity going on, right? You can guess at that um, just from the context. And then later in the letter, he does go on to address a couple of people who aren't getting along at all. And we'll see that later in the letter. But so Paul loves this church and he's deeply concerned about a lack of, of unity. And it, it ties into this theme of complaining that we'll get to in a little bit. But let me read through the text for you. And then we'll go through and just take, I won't be able to touch on everything in here. There's some wonderful, profound truths. But we'll, we'll touch on a number of the big themes in here right now. So what we're, the, the theme of this, though, is to work out what God has worked into you. Work out what God has worked into you. So we'll read the passage. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, uh, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, 
But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So here we get into the, uh, the overarching uh, the text. Paul is, is talking to the people and in summer, he's saying, hey, I want you um, to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he, so that's the primary command. And then he gives another command about complaining and arguing. And as we get into those, we'll, we'll unpack what those actually mean and how they're tied together, okay? But first off, there's a, um, an important principle you've probably heard before whenever you're, you're reading the Bible or for that matter, reading any literature. When there's a, um, a therefore, you ask the question, what's that therefore, therefore, right? Um, what, what precedes this passage is we looked at last week. And if you hadn't listened to that message, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. It was this beautiful hymn, most people think, about, the, about Jesus Christ, this beautiful statement about who Jesus was and what he had done. And it talks about though he was in very nature God, he didn't clutch on to um, that Godness, but he, he laid it aside and made himself a servant. He didn't cling to his rights or argue for his rights, but he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so that we, we look back and that therefore, which we carry forward to this passage is an understanding of, of Christ's humility, but also his exaltation. We come to the end of that passage and it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. and Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord or he's the king of all creation to the glory of God to the glory of God the Father. So we hold in our minds as we're moving forward into these passages, the, the, both the humility and obedience of Jesus, but also his glory. So as you're, as you're holding on, as we're looking at these passages, let's think about what God has done in Christ for us. Because Paul doesn't just move from theology uh, as, as some abstract and then into behavior as something completely different. They're deeply related to one another. And so he moves on to this command and he says, Continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation. What does, what does that mean? If, um, if you've been around the church very long, maybe uh, you get a little nervous when you hear that language, work, work out salvation. Salvation isn't, isn't a result of works. And when we use the word salvation, it means our, our standing before God. We're, we're rescued. We're rescued from the, the result or the penalty of our, our sin against God. So this, this word is um, applying both to individuals, but also to them as a corporate community, that um, their salvation, their rescue, their, their purchase into a new family and community, that they're to work that out. They're to work that out. Now, um, that, if that, if this is not to work for your salvation, but it's to work out. And we'll see a little later in this passage where we're working out, as the title of our message is, working out what God has already worked in. God has already worked this in. God has already done something inside of them to give them new life, um, a new identity in the gospel. And then they need to work that out. They're, they're living out externally what's true of them internally. And so Paul says, I want you to work that out. And how so? He wants them to do it with much fear and trembling. And uh, lest that scare you, I want you, it, this is a, a this phrase is used in the Old Testament frequently um, just to refer to an, an odd 
response, not an odd response, but a, a response of awe at the work of God, that he's done something so great. So when we look at these two words, we look back at what Jesus has done. We look at his, his humiliation, but his exaltation at the same time, his, um, that therefore that we held on to that Jesus, though he was a very God of very God, he was the son of God. He was, he was abused, he was beaten, he laid down his life for us. And he's the God of the entire universe. And it should instill in us this fear and trembling, the sense of awe at what God has done for the people who call upon him, for anybody who call upon him to be rescued from the result of their sin, both individually and then also he's saying to the church, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in light of what Christ has done. But just to make it obvious, make it absolutely clear that the people aren't thinking or we're not thinking later that this has to do with us saving ourselves, Paul goes on to say, um, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, or in order to fulfill his good purpose, that it's God who works in us, that this is not um, us working for our own uh, merit before God to, to save ourselves, but God has worked in us. The divine will has given us the ability to will to do right. God's will has enlivened or made alive our will, and he's given us the ability to, to act, to do good things. So, so God has secured for us eternal life and made us his children, but he's also begun to work in us to will to do the right thing and given us the power to do that. But we work together with God's will to, to realize the fruit of, of salvation, um, that, that we begin to look more and more like the children of God by our, um, by our action and joining with God in that. So uh, a specific area that Paul gets to, and, and I don't think it's one that's just random. Paul wants to give us one specific area uh, give the Philippian church with its, its struggle with unity, one specific area that it's struggling at realizing its unity. And he says, I want you to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Another word, grumbling, um, can also be translated complaining. He wants them to, um, and he picks this really specifically. These, these words were used in the Old Testament, grumbling and arguing of the people of Israel as they're coming out of um, Egypt. And the Exodus story, they are uh, they grumble and complain and argue against Moses, who was God's appointed leader of the people. So they grumble and they complain. And um, God, Paul looks at that and says, "Look, I want you not to have that kind of grumbling spirit." And it, when you look at the hierarchy of, of awful things that people can do, murder and rape and all the horrors and terrors, why does he pick these things to say? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Well, as I said before, that. I think we'll see in this passage that complaining, a complaining heart, a complaining spirit can can really destroy our own spiritual growth. It can destroy and disrupt community, and it can radically affect our witness to the world around us. Paul's a missionary. He wants the world to know that God is good, and God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. And a grumbling community, a complaining community is a place where that is very, very difficult to perceive. So given this theme of unity, Paul wants them to, to not grumble and complain because he wants them to become blameless and pure. And you might wonder how blamelessness and purity can be related to uh, uh, if, if you just don't do, if you don't do this complaining or if you don't grumble and argue, then you'll be blameless and pure. That seems like a stretch, right? That seems like a stretch of the, the imagination because there are a lot of other things we can do. So why might this be? Well, I think, and, and I've prayed a lot about this, I've been thinking about this passage, I think that um, when we grumble and complain, when we grumble and complain, we take 
And we essentially say, okay, to the, especially when it comes to the, within a church context, in a, in a body of people who are following Jesus Christ, that we, uh, we reject the input of others into our lives when we grumble or complain. Uh, let me give you an example. I am, um, I'm a pastor, right? And I, I can listen to a sermon and, and I have done this. So I confess and it's, it's a shame, but I've done this. And uh, I'll ask my wife, Kay, who's a wonderful lady. Hey, what'd you think? And she said, I liked it. That was a good sermon. It, it really helped me to, to understand who Jesus was better. And, and I can quickly go to, well, here's what was wrong with it. Um, you know, that wasn't, that's not the, 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 what Paul meant and the context would have been this. And, you know, if you take in light of what they said over here in Romans, it probably, you know what I've just done. Um, I'm like a man who was, uh, a beautiful meal was set in front of him and I was, I was given the opportunity to eat. And I said, you know what? Uh, there's too much salt in here. Oh, there's too much oregano. There's not enough basil. And I'm going to walk away from that hungry. I'm going to walk away from that, that wonderful meal that was set out for me hungry because I've rejected it. I've grumbled about it and complained about it. And what might be worse is if I start complaining to other people, grumbling to them that um, that wasn't that wasn't very good or this isn't very good. I don't know if you've ever had a person ruin a, a movie or a song for you that you thought was beautiful. And then they began to tell you everything that was wrong with it. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm just silly then. Um, now, this doesn't mean, please don't hear me saying that we have to completely agree, and Paul isn't saying to these guys that they need to completely agree on everything. There is diversity within um, the body of Christ. We don't just say, hey, the pastor said it, we need to agree with it and then fall in line, lockstep. No, um, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, somebody called me and they said, hey, Dave, I have um, have a problem with something that that, um, I heard and is, is going on at the church, and I want to talk with you about it. And we talked. And we had a great discussion. Um, we, uh, we talked on the phone. We, I think, came to some resolution. And I said, hey, I think you should bring this up with some others in leadership because they're more um, close to this situation. And I'd appreciate it if you'd call them. And they said, absolutely. So they picked up the phone, called that person, talked to them, and they resolved it. But they weren't, they weren't grumbling and complaining about it. They were bringing an issue to a person so they could resolve it, so they could work together. And they, when you complain about something, you're taking something from someone, right? If I, if I complain about a message that someone gives or about a meal or what, but I don't talk to them directly, what I'm doing is I'm taking from them honor. I'm taking from them respect. I'm taking and, and I'm attempting to undercut them in another person's life. I'm not giving anything to a person. When I talk to someone directly, I'm offering them my perspective, my ideas. But um, I'm essentially saying, hey, I want to be unified in Jesus Christ. I understand that the gospel is foundational to who we are and what we are. And I want to grow closer to you and to the Lord Jesus. So we do this together in community. I had a friend um, from seminary. One time we were, we were together on a missions trip and he was staying with another guy. And the other guy was a slob. We used up all the towels and left them wet on the floor, left a wet towel on his bed. And uh, he was telling me or three or four other guys, like, ah, this is what this guy's doing, blah, blah, blah. He's making this mess. And I'm like, well, say something to him. And, and this guy was fortunately honest enough to say, he said, no, it's a short trip and I don't care about the relationship that much. I, that's a terrible thing to say, but that's exactly what he was saying, right? 
I don't care about the relationship that much. He had an opportunity to, um, now that's a silly example of what can go on. And I've seen churches split. I, I literally have seen churches split. People fired over grumbling and complaining and issues that were never brought up. I've seen in our missionary family, people's lives and ministries wrecked because they haven't brought things to um, they haven't brought things out into the light with the people who could do something about them. So Paul is saying that grumbling and complaining can affect us personally. They can affect the body, but they also have this powerful effect that they can, they can wreck our witness to the world. Paul says that we live in a warped and crooked generation. And again, this is Old Testament language. This looks back to the people of Israel that they lived amongst. The, it says that they were at times a warped and crooked or um, depraved generation. And this, this has, and the, if you haven't listened to the little video that George put up um, on this passage, I would encourage you to do that. But he points out, and the, the word that's used in here for, for crooked is the same word that we have for scoliosis. So this, um, and it, it has to do with justice, that, there's, that our, our world is unjust. And we don't have to look very far to, to see that, right? That our world, there's an injustice in our world. It's also morally depraved. It's warped and it's crooked. So morally bad and unjust so that um, we become blameless and pure in this world. And what's the result of that? Well, it's that then you will shine like you will shine among them like stars. And so the world is this warped, uh, crooked place around us. That was true of the Philippians. It was true of the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's true of us today, right? We look and we see this um, this brokenness, this warpness about what it means to be human and how people treat one another and um, the despair. And what people are looking for is hope. If you, um, if you look at all, if you talk to anyone about their, uh, the, the frustration with the, um, with the George Floyd murder and with what's going on in our society in general, people are, are so deeply, deeply frustrated, but they're looking for hope. They're looking for answers. We have that hope, those answers, and it's the new community that's formed as followers of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is looking at the Philippian church. There were, there were slaves, there were slave owners, there were Greeks, there were Romans, there were Jews, there were um, rich, there were poor, there were men, there were women, there were people from different tribes that had been conquered. And he was saying, you, as you and the church, are one new humanity, one new person, one new body brought together with the head, Jesus Christ, and you can shine like stars in the sky if you will, if you will get this right, if you will stop grumbling and complaining against the leaders that God has put over you. And one of the things that happens um, as they, they stop grumbling, as they start, stop complaining and focus on, the, on their, what they have in common and Jesus Christ, their, their own identity, is they begin to shine like stars in the sky. And I don't know if you've ever been um, in a place that's really, really dark and looked up in the sky. I've been to places like Haiti or Burkina Faso and out in a village, and you look up in the sky at night on a clear sky, and the stars just explode in your eyes. They're, wow, this is, I couldn't believe there are this many stars. I was, I was, grew up as a city kid, um, but you get out to places, and the stars are just shine. And you notice that Paul doesn't say you shine like the sun, which is overwhelming and blinding, but you shine like stars with a backdrop of darkness. Now, um, I want to tell a quick story uh, that, that I think illustrates this really, really well. There's a, um, there are two uh, famous, famous theologians and preachers, John Wesley and George Whitfield, that were part of the, uh, the um, 
the Great Awakening, uh, both in England and the United States. They're magnificent preachers, both of them. And they started off ministering together, um, but eventually had a, a falling out over a theological uh, point of difference. And it was a pretty significant one that they, were, um, they weren't seeing eye to eye on. And so they, they parted ways and their, their ministries went different directions. Both continued very effectively in ministry. And a man asked um, John Wesley one time, because of the deep theological differences, he said, do you think uh, you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? And uh, Wesley said, I do not. And he was like, huh. So he's saying he's not even a believer, right? He's not even a follower of Jesus. He said, I don't think I'll see Whitfield in heaven because I believe that man will be so close to God's throne, so close to Christ that I won't get a glimpse of him because he's way up there and I'm way in the back. And that's the kind of attitude that focuses on, it gives no cause for people around you to, um, to dull those stars that shine. Now, friends, as the people of God, um, we have... Those of us who are, who are called to follow Jesus here in Hershey, Pennsylvania, at Hershey Free Church and to fellowship together, we have the opportunity um, to not grumble and complain or argue with one another, but to speak well of each other, to disagree but without being disagreeable, to speak directly to each other, um, to speak words of truth, but in love to one another and resolve our conflicts and to to display to the world a different kind of way of being human, not focused on our, um, on our party that we hold to, not focused on our political views, not focused on um, uh, our wealth or our lack of wealth, our race, our, our, even our, our national identity. There are people in our church who aren't from the United States, and, uh, but we, we focus on something far more central, far more core, and that's your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ, one who's been called into his kingdom. And as we walk together with Jesus Christ, we shine like stars. And the world can look, it can see and say, ah, that's the answer to what's broken about people, the enmity that people have against one another, the, uh, the, the enmity that people have against God. And this tears things down and brings them together. It doesn't eliminate our differences. In fact, um, in the great um, revelation, the, the book of Revelation says that we'll come in every tribe and tongue and nation, still distinct, but coming to the throne to, to glorify God and to praise him, that we will come all together. So if you're a follower of Jesus, God has done a remarkable work in your heart. He has called you to himself. He has made you his child. He has given you life. And he's called you into a new community that will, that will form you if you let it. If you let it, if you stand off and you say, nope, I don't want that. That meal is not good enough for me. It's too salty, uh, not enough oregano. Then you are blunting, uh, you're blunting God's work in your life by rejecting the means that he would grow you. One of the main means that he would grow you is by putting pastors and teachers and elders and people in your life who would help you to grow. And you're also, you're rejecting the community that God has put you into one body and, uh, and, and called you together. So this idea of grumbling and complaining, first, it hurts us personally and individually. It hurts our community and, and the world around us. Is, um, it kills our mission. It just, it, who wants to join a, a group of grumblers and complainers? If we can't get along with one another, the person who used to sit next to you in the pew, um, the person that you call a brother or a sister in Christ, if you can't get along with them, then how can you say, ah, this is the gospel that brings the whole world together? This is the gospel that makes enemies into friends. If it doesn't work here, how can people believe that it works anywhere? So friends, we're going to move into very appropriately, I think, a time of communion. 
Um, and communion is a time that we celebrate our unity and what Jesus Christ has done for us, that we come together and we say, we partake of the finished work of Jesus, his shed blood and broken body for us. And that's what we need. That's what we need. If, if what I've said today has landed and you're like, man, there are areas of my life where I've been a complainer, a grumbler, um, about the church or about someone within the church and you need to you need to make that right. First, let's make it right before God right here. I'm gonna ask you to go and uh, if you haven't gathered the, the elements for communion, please do so now. We're gonna enjoy one more um, time of singing together and then we'll come back and take those elements together.